0: Welcome back to another episode of the Art First Commerce podcast, proudly presented by Masters in Motion. Uh, this week is with cinematographer Carmen Cabana. She is an alumni of uh, Masters in Motion. She was there a couple years ago and she is going to be back this year. So in a couple of weeks, she is going to be uh, in Austin with everybody else. It's a three day uh Filmmaking Conference that happens in Austin, Texas every year. Um, DPs, uh, editors, uh, production designers all come down, give great presentations, and uh, more, more importantly, they hang out, and we uh, we go out at night. There's a lot of social interaction, a lot of networking, uh, both with attendees and also the speakers, uh, and it's a great time. And if you want to buy tickets, it's at shooteditlearn.com. But this week, like I said, is with Carmen Cabana. She is a cinematographer who, um, most notably, was the one a DP for the second season of Narcos on Net Netflix, and now she has done Vita, which is on Amazon Prime, and uh, it's not out yet, but it'll be coming out on Hulu, uh, High Fidelity, which is an adaptation of the uh, 80s movie, and now it's starring Zoe Kravitz as the lead, and um, it was amazing talking with with Carmen, she has such an interesting story coming from Colombia and Venezuela, and um, figuring out how to come over to the States and get into uh, the film industry when... You know, she moved to LA. She did not know one single person, so she completely did this uh, by her own volition. And uh, we go through that whole journey, and uh, then we just talk about, you know, being on set and and all of the things related to the craft and to um, her personal filmography. So another great conversation, uh, really fascinating to chat with her. And then also, she she's been pretty outspoken on um, women's inclusion in, in the industry, and she's given a lot of talks on the subject. Uh, if you go to her website, it kind of lists everything that she's been involved in in her career and also in, in this. and we we chatted about that as well and so I loved hearing her perspective on all of that on all that too. So this week is with cinematographer Carmen Cabana. Yes I guess just to to get things going I just wanted to ask um, how you've been doing and and what kind of things have you recently been working on? Sure Um, well this year has been really great. i
1: for the most part, uh, February all the way till August, I worked on a TV series for a Hulu called um, High Fidelity, mm-hmm. which is the TV version remake of the John Cusack um, film, you know, from the 80s called High Fidelity about the record store. Yeah. Uh, the difference is at this time it's a um, female perspective, and Zoe Kravitz is playing the character of uh, John Cusack, and we have great cast, great comedy. Mm-hmm. we shot it uh all in brooklyn new york and, he, and for me was the first time that i also got to shoot in new york long term oh really um, so that's really really interesting and really cool with a lot of uh you know challenges as far as like lighting multiple blocks of a street at night yeah it's intense, that's part yeah. of what the characters do they they listen to music and they, they go on these long walks talking about love and things and so we cover a lot of ground so that's really great um and after that, in August, uh, well, mid-August, I started a Blumhouse film. Oh, really? Cool. Called uh, Nocturne.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's nice because I come back to the to the horror. Well, this one was more of like a thriller. There wasn't really any blood, but it was more of like a psychological thriller genre. And it was with Sydney Sweeney from Euphoria and... Um, and I really enjoy working on that movie because, uh, if you recall from my work, it's always very like greedy yeah. or very you know colorful. Like like I'm always more like handheld, and, like you know loose. Yeah, totally. This movie was like the opposite. It was it was aesthetic of a bleach bypass look, very desaturated. The camera always very rigid. The composition very very well designed. So yeah, it was it was like the opposite from what I normally do. Which yeah, is that sounds I awesome. Took that job. Mm-hmm. and uh, and now I am working on some wonderful vacations with my family. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Went to the beach in Colombia. This was fine an hour so. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Really good.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was going to ask, you. I wanted to kind of go back, so that seems like a perfect segue to talk about, um, you know, your history and kind of how you got to where you are now and growing up in Colombia. I'm always interested when people are kind of growing up outside of the U.S. in a totally different you know film environment what was it like growing up in colombia in terms of as you were gaining a um an interest in film you know what was accessible to you in in that way and were there outlets to learn about the craft or did it kind of seem like this thing super far away that wasn't attainable what was it what was that like in colombia growing up
1: honestly for me it was very very limiting because uh Back then, Colombia didn't have the huge incentives that it it has been having for the past, I think, seven years or eight years. So the film industry in Colombia now is like night and day, way better, different than what I had uh, growing up. Uh, a big chunk of my of my life was, you know, in Venezuela. Actually, I'm, I am fifty fifty Colombian in Venezuela. Mm. So in Venezuela, for instance, getting access to um, movies and DVDs was was very hard. Yeah. like once one, once the blockbusters disappear and and in the small towns they didn't even have that. It was all like piracy, uh, piracy, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and then when you get available on virus, it's funny because it's a lot of action movies and a lot of Asian cinema. Mm-hmm. So for me, the influence was a lot of Asian cinema. It's what I could find mostly in the horror genre and stuff like that. Um, as far as Colombia went, I I was a movie buff, and I would do things where I would you know, go to the cinema and watch three movies in a row and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really so impossible for me to ever break into the film industry because nobody in my family or nobody that I knew has ever been in the film industry or in any art form where there are, you know, lawyers, doctors, engineers, it's like far from it.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: but, uh, but it's something that, that uh, you know, I caught my attention and then I went to film school in Colombia for a year.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm uh, just curious that if you are coming from a family that, um, doesn't really have anyone in the arts, and then you're also in a country where the access to film is limited in general. Where did that desire to be involved in film come from? Like, at what point did you even think to yourself being, doing film as a career was possible? Because I'm just curious, like, it doesn't seem like you were in an environment that would even allow that, that thought, but you had it anyway. How did that happen?
1: It happened late. It happened when I was 20 years old. I had graduated from from high school, and I was in uh, the one-year limbo where I couldn't figure out, you know, what career to choose. So I took some classes on um, video game animation, all my passions, because I was a gamer. So I took a lot of video game animation. I took Japanese lessons, uh, painting, different stuff. Like, I definitely knew that I wanted something visually. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing for for film was bizarre, because... um, at the time my sister took me to an astrology, she's like, oh, my God, you can't figure out what, what to study. So let's get you some help. And I don't know if, if, if this was a right move or not. But astrology said, like, hey, look, from everything you're telling me, your personality, you don't want to be in the same place all the time. You don't want to be behind a desk. You like to be constantly learning things. And you seem to be charming. So go into the film industry. Hmm. And, and at that moment, it, it clicked on me. I was like, oh my God, like he's right. Like, if I'm in the film industry, I'm always going to be learning. I'm always going to have an excuse to be researching topics, going to countries, collaborating. And I always felt that I did have a good eye. Like, people always told me, "Like oh, you take good pictures. Oh, your paintings are not too bad. <laughs> uh, so I was drawing, like, you know, Japanese anime. Right, so, right. Like, it kind of makes sense that something visual would work. Um, but I didn't think it was going to be cinematography. Like, uh, I looked, you know, YouTube and some of these, like, online classes tutorial talk people talking. And then I bought some in a, uh, what is it called? Like, one of those book conventions. I bought these books um, that Robert Redford have written on filmmaking. Uh-huh. And that's when I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna be a writer." That makes sense to me. I think the cinematography is too technical, so I'll find somebody else to do the job. Uh, the other things, no, the acting, I suck. <laughs> so
0: that's
1: kind of like a segue. Yeah, <laughs> so and that once I go to Los Angeles.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I was gonna ask, like, because yeah. in that, because you make that, mm-hmm. you make that choice, and then. Um, how were you looking at, it's like, okay, well, now I realize that I want to be in the film industry, but then, like, what was the thought process there of, like, moving, did you automatically, like, well, now I have to move to L.A., or was that a journey, and, like, what were you hoping to, what was the goal when you moved to L.A. originally?
1: It definitely was to, to be in the place where, I mean, when you think of Hollywood, like, you know, when you think of cinema, you think of Hollywood, like, uh, that that, uh, hmm that's at the center of the whole thing. Although I do respect, you know, French cinema, Japanese cinema, many other cinemas, but as far as an industry, I think Hollywood worldwide is the, is the leader. Yeah. Um, so for me, once I did a, one year of film school in Colombia, and it absolutely sucked, like I felt like I was wasting my time and my money and everything, mm. then I was like, I'm not going to waste time with anything that's going to be half-assed. I'm going to go straight to Los Angeles, straight to Hollywood. Yeah, like, like I think most people that go there, we all go with a fantasy, and I've never been to Los Angeles ever. So I just like talked to my parents, some sacrifices here and there, and you know, I arrived straight into English school first because <laughs> I was a, yeah. <laughs> a little barrier. <laughs> were you were
0: you were you able to speak English at that point, or were you just learning then?
1: I was able to speak some, but not perfectly, because I lived uh, when I was 18. I moved to Trinidad and Tobago, mm-hmm. which is a Caribbean island. Yeah. So I had you know, my knowledge of English from yeah. there, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't perfect. Like as far as technical knowledge, no. Um, so I did three months of English, and then I started my film school.
0: And so you're there um, trying to get into the, trying to just get into the film industry and networking and you did that cold. There was no one there that you knew going in?
1: Nobody, nobody. I didn't know any single person in the city. So yeah, it was all definitely my journey was the full journey of escalating the ladder and coming to an unknown place and yeah. making it your home. Yeah. Figuring out, you know, the system or how it works and
0: Yeah, that's super intense. I, mean, I, I I've done that myself. I, I lived in Brazil for a couple of years and I just can appreciate um the amount of challenges, were there, um, obviously going into that, you, you can expect a certain level of difficulty. Do you remember anything taking you by surprise or being more challenging than you thought it would? What, what was that early, early stage like? I think that the most challenging and
1: shocking part for me was the bullshit. <laughs> the bullshit? My language. But it's like it's the amount of people that you meet that are supposedly cooking a project. Mm. And it's going to happen. It's for sure. And they got all these great people attached and all this stuff. And it's going in certain dates. And it's absolutely bullshit. They don't even have like a hundred dollars in bank account towards that project. So they drag you along forever. Endless, you know, lunches, meetings. You're putting presentations. You're doing all these things. And in the end, you know, they don't, they don't happen. They, they never happen. Um, yeah. To me, that was really, really shocking. And it took me a long time to figure out the strategy to not sort of fall in that trap again. Because it's, I think that's the part that is the most hurtful towards us, people that are trying to break into the industry. Is that if somebody comes to you with a great project and you're bonding and it sounds real, and they tell you, hold me the dates of, october till december and they're telling you that in march mm-hmm. you're you're holding those dates out of loyalty so everything that's coming you're like oh no but i have this thing and then when you know october november december comes and this thing falls through suddenly you're in limbo yeah so i had a lot of you know financial setbacks from that um on the other hand i did do a lot of like you know Craigslist. Cheap movies, cheap shorts, cheap music videos.
2: Yeah,
1: and uh, and at least those were a little bit more immediate.
2: Yeah,
1: they pay very little. It's funny the other day I was finding a, a an invoice of a movie that I did back in like 2008 where I made seventy five dollars per day as a cinematographer. Oh a my beach.
2: gosh! <laughs> exactly. Oh man.
1: <laughs> so there were a lot of there were a lot of that. There were a lot of one hundred and fifty dollars per day, seventy five dollars per day you know, and it's hard because how do you co up those projects? How do you even get the equipment for those projects? So that's where, you know, I, I'm very loyal right now to a rental house over there called the Camera Division, mm-hmm. because that's one of the places that has been there for me since day one, where I will come to them and be like, I only have this much, but I need a camera, I need some lenses, I need a tripod, these things. So they really accommodate it. Yeah. Uh, Panavision is like that. So I think for us, starting filmmakers, we really depend on this, you know, companies sort of charity to help us at least have the right tools. Yeah. But as far as having the right personnel, oh, my God. Like, I think my my first feature, my entire crew minus one quit on day one. No. Because, uh, yeah, because they was uh, shooting the desert. It was paying very little. The producers were so stupid that they (laughs) put us on load trucks for like two blocks in this heat. And they didn't even think of having waters or food they were gonna buy them later and the town was like a 40-minute drive yeah so just from that greeting my my first crew which i met while i was doing lighting pa or electrician sure you know th- those kind of things
2: yeah
1: and i was like hey now i'm a cinematographer i want to bring you on board and they were like great and i bring them into this shit show of course they quit on me so <laughs> so that i think that's the most challenging thing it's like getting past those type of production those past of chat those past of um Oh, my God, there, my English to <laughs> getting past those elements um, and, and dealing with the emotional, you know, toll that that takes and also being able to survive financially. Because I always think that the problem for most filmmakers, like I look at most of the people that graduated with me and that are not working in the film industry, mm. is that you have to pay the insane student dues. Yeah. So you can't do this seventy five dollar movie, you know, once a year. You have to work in a Starbucks, do several things and combine it with the art and with this project. So it's very, very tricky. Yeah. But once you get past that, honestly, it gets very, very easy. It gets a lot easier. Like right now I'm very fortunate that I'm in the in the I'm able to reject a lot of jobs <laughs> right now. Oh yeah,
0: no, the place you're in now comparatively yeah, to yeah, then is uh is pretty wild. Um when as you were in those early stages, was there? Um, yeah, was was there um, a moment or a project in particular where it felt like you had got out and got out of that first step, and that you were not not where you are now, but that that you were um, like a, a defining early stage moment where it was like, okay, I'm actually going to be doing this and and it's not um, so precarious anymore. Was, was, was there a project that sticks out that kind of represents that moment in time for you?
1: Yes, and the project is called Cartas Elena. In English is Letter to Elena. And it was a movie that we shot at in Mexico.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that actually was, even though it was low budget, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. The crew was fantastic. Everybody was super nice. We had our challenges, but they didn't come from the production. They came from like the elements. Like, we were, for instance, shooting this indigenous reservation, and we were misinformed by the government that we could film and build a set there. And once we built it, these people came with like machetes. Oh my God. So they were going to like kill us and set, the set on fire if Holy we didn't shit. Leave right away. And we had to start filming the movie. <laughs> yeah. So we had those other kind of challenges. But as far as like, as the team, it was an amazing shoot, a beautiful experience. And I think the movie cinematically is is gorgeous. Mm. Like I I feel very proud of myself and the team because back then, for instance, with the it was the red, the very first red that came out. The red one. Um, it didn't have like the latitudes. Yeah. It didn't have the latitudes that Alexas and these other reds have now. Yeah. So this, the latitude between, you know, darkness and blowing up an image was like nothing.
2: Yeah,
1: and the movie is very well exposed. Like you see every detail in the sky, in the highlights, in the floor, in the clothes, and also in the shadows. And I did a lot of trickery with that by using water, you know, timing it, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, so I was very proud of it. And that movie opened a lot of doors. Like once it released, uh, yeah. it released in over 300 theaters. Then I started getting calls from other people. I finally was able to have. Uh, a demo reel, because that's the other challenge, like most of these shadier movies that I did, mm. because, you know, they're like, that. Ah, they never they never get released, yeah. or they never give you the footage. So it, the end is for nothing. If you don't have anything to show, it's your world versus somebody else's, you know, belief mm-hmm. that you are capable of doing what you're saying you're doing. Mm-hmm. So this movie finally gave me the footage, and then with this demo reel, I was able to book definitely more features of better level.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's interesting looking at your um, filmography that it's that this movie that you're talking about came out in 2011. And then, you know, obviously the big thing that that stands out is that in five years later in 2016, you did Narcos. Um, that's a that's a big five year jump. Um, what, what, what was that like going from having like, I suppose, like your first very successful movie all the way to getting into a very mainstream project like Narcos. What what was that journey like?
2: Um,
1: well, multiple things. On one end, of course, it's like a dream come true. It's like the heat of luck. Even though at that point when I was with Narcos, I didn't know that the show was so popular. I had not even seen season one. Oh, really? So, but for me, yeah. But for me, it was like, oh, my God, I get to go back to Colombia, be with my country, with my family, my city, and shoot for eight months.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: that that was very appealing. And, I, and at that point, by the time I did Narcos, I was a fan of, you know, the action genre. And my last three movies before it had been action. I, think it, I forgot the names, but it was like a Danny Trejo movie called Bullet. or done a few other before. So I had a demo reel that included action. And mm-hmm. That also helped me in that interview. Mm-hmm. So so that part was really nice because it was like, okay, fine, I'm in the genre that I like, I'm in the country that I like, but I've never worked on TV. So it was a little bit of like a quick, you know, crash course of like what the dynamics of TV are the fact that you are not like the only cinematographer, like you are a team and that you, and there's also a season before you. Mm-hmm. So you are not creating everything from scratch. You actually have to, you know, honor a lot of these elements so that the show doesn't jump out at the audience.
0: Yeah, I was curious to talk okay. about this with you. Like what, what, especially hearing this now that, you know, it kind of caught, not that it caught you off guard, but it was the first time you were doing it. Um, in particular about working off of someone else's plan, but wanting to impart your own, Um, your own style as much as you can within the confines of something that has a definitive style. What what was that push and pull like for you?
1: Well, I think it wasn't that difficult, to be honest. For me, one advantage is that I always interpret the page, like the particular script, Mm -hmm. and I see where it makes sense psychologically to, for instance, take some liberties. Right. Because I think any any movie kind of calls for that. And for instance, the you know season two had a lot of those flashbacks of like Pablo fantasizing of his you know dead cousin, and I was very fortunate that I got to shoot that. For instance, the car race sequence and stuff like that. So that's something that because it didn't exist in season one, we had a little bit of like the freedom to to make it more fun, more colorful, this the, and a different kind of dynamic. Um, but as far as bringing my own aesthetics into it, uh, one thing that I did bring a lot is, of course, being from the city and knowing the hoods that we were shooting in. Because sure. we, we shot it in the ghetto. We didn't shoot it in Medellin except for like a week. So we were in the ghetto of Bogota, Yeah. which is the only area that sort of resembles Medellin. This, these two cities are very far apart from each other. Mm. Um, but I was lucky enough that my mom did a lot of... Um, uh, you know, church charity work. Mm. So I was familiar with those areas and knew sort of what they did lighting-wise. Like, for instance, they would use Christmas lights in the window in July. <laughs> Not because it was Christmas, but it's because it's just a source of light and it looked pretty.
2: So,
1: yeah. you know, things like that, or, you know, the fact that they always put, like, light bulbs by the arepa or the mango stands or the hot dog stands.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um You know, those kind of elements for shooting outdoors and all these sequences, that was very useful, sort of like knowing what what sources you could create of light to help you cover more ground. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, making sure that it was accurate. I think the important thing in accuracy was that it would pass for Medellin and that will pass for the Pira, and that it will feel like Colombia. You know, like other films that they try to say, oh, it's Colombia, and you're like, it looks like Mexico, it feels like Mexico, and it's Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of part. Um, the other part that was interesting was, yeah, the collaboration with the other cinematographers, because sometimes you are breaking sequences, and so I'm doing one part, I'm doing another, and you have to be very consistent. So in a lot of the workshops that now I teach as a cinematographer, I do this exercise with the students, where we create like a scene, and they, you know, I split them in two. So one team lights the scene, and then the other team sends a spy, like a gaffer, to take notes on paper uh, of like what the lighting setups were. And then they we swap teams, and the team that didn't get to see anything has to now come in and recreate everything based on notes and based on a, a still that they see on the monitor.
0: Oh, that's um, fascinating.
1: Yeah, because that's ultimately you know, a big part of the job on TV, even when you're uh, an only unit. Like in my case of Vita, uh, Vida didn't have an alternating DP until season two, but all season one, it was just me. This show that I did this year, High Finality, was just one cinematographer. Mm. But sometimes I'm not shooting in order. Sometimes I'm doing things from episode six in episode one. So you have to be very organized with your notes, and where you place things, at what levels, what levels of intensity, color, etc., so that everything is consistent when you go back yeah. you know, later in time
2: to
0: it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot involved with TV in particular, especially coming off of only doing, you know, single single story projects that are, you know, films. Essentially, um, you're dealing with all the stuff on the cinematography side, and then I would imagine that the politics are also different too, um, especially over such a longer period of time. Uh, was that something that you felt? Was a new challenge or did it feel like more of the same and and just, you know, part of the life of being a department head?
1: It's a new challenge because now you're not listening to one. Well, for instance, the main thing that is different is the aspect that directors are guests. Right. And to me, that was really, really interesting because in movies, you know, I always saw myself as like the right hand of the director and then I would like stand on my head for my director and mm-hmm. literally hang off a train, which I did, I have done <laughs> yeah. for my director. Sure. Uh, but on TV, you have sometimes a showrunner that will be like, oh, I'm not liking the director. I don't like that idea. So no, you guys are not going to do that. You're going to do this instead. And you have to be that kind of like filter that mediates. Those two things, because you also don't want to make, you know, the experience of your director on set hell. Yeah, I like for everybody to be happy and do the best that they can. But yeah, sometimes there are these wars between showrunners and directors. So that's that politically, that's really really different. Uh, so on TV, you have multiple bosses that you have to serve and you have to keep them all happy. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah that, takes a certain level of skill. Yeah. And on the other hand, TV, I think it's easier than film, to be honest, because we have more time, way more money. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh
1: So so those kind of like, you know, challenges as far as like, you know, criminal restrictions on TV, I haven't experienced much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would I, that whole aspect of having just so many different directors come in. I mean, I think that's that's the other thing, you know, especially when you're coming into something like you did with Narcos on the second season. So it's like You're not, you didn't set the look. You have to follow the look, but you can have your own, you know, input when it's appropriate. And then you also have almost per episode or in chunks of episodes, different people directing you. Um, That just seems like such a unique beast comparatively to every other format. Mm
1: -hmm. It is. It definitely is. Yeah. It's its its own beast, but it's fun. I really, I really like TV. I feel like... I kind of like to be better than film, to be honest, and it might be Why is the reason. Might be because I haven't landed the the ideal type of films. Uh, there's always been something lacking. Mm. If the script is great, then the production doesn't have what it you know what it needs to be what I would want it to be, or or vice versa, or you know there are other kind of dramas. Um, but yeah. TV just seems more more stable and more like that supporting is there for you. Mm. But on film, it's, it's your own sort of a struggle trying to accommodate a lot of things to make something great that an audience is going to see. Yeah. So you're kind of put in a, in a position where you're kind of set for failure. So it's a whole battle of trying
0: not to fail. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, also, once you're in like a, a, a successful mun- multi-season show, you're talking about what is effectively like a longer-term business that exists for many years. I mean, it gets to a point where it becomes a more well oiled machine than a movie that is even no matter how successful it is it's you know it's set up and broken down within six to nine months anyway it's just a completely different thing um i was curious for that comparison then with vita uh which was you know a show that you were on from the very beginning and you were on the pilot so i'm assuming that you were very involved in prep and the the building blocks of the visuals of the show from the get-go i would love to hear about that experience and what that was like
1: that was very. Let's see. Let me find a word to put it. It was. It was really interesting because yeah, having the ability to sort of create from scratch something was very liberating. Yeah. But again, I was not familiar with the East L.A. You know, Latinx
0: Chicano work. thing.
1: Uh, yeah. So for me, a lot of it was you know the research going. So, with the production de- designers several times to those neighborhoods mm-hmm. and getting familiar with the aesthetics, with the culture, with how things look. In that sense, it was more challenging than Narcos because Narcos, you know, like I said, I, I am from the city, so I grew up here. So it was like, oh, yeah, I know exactly how all these things should look like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But with via I was like, okay, I need to portray this family, this, this neighborhood, and a lot of it, we didn't do it in Boyle Heights. Because there were some, you know, conflicts with Boyle Heights, so we filmed vida in other neighborhoods in LA. Tried to make them pass for Boyle Heights. Um, So it did took a lot of, um, it did take a lot of, uh, you know, study, social study, and cultural study to create that aesthetic. And then uh, from what was written on the page was where the ideas came of making it a more more loose camera, you Mm. know. Mm -hmm. Um, and also the female gaze was so important into this story. Like on Narcos, for instance, the sexy scenes were not a big deal at all. (laughs) But on Vida, the sexuality of these characters was a representation of where they were emotionally as women in in time and in life. Yeah. And it was sort of like, you know, how they would react to a lot of the things happening in their life, like the frustration of about being about to lose the bar or the, or the death of the mother stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it meant it meant more than that. So it was it was really interesting how to to develop these text scenes in a way that felt uh, like a good
0: representation
1: of it. Um, yeah, I'm curious but about it was, that. It was, it was very good. Um, yeah, I'm curious, curious about good. that
0: in terms of the the female gaze um, coming from a female cinematographer. Is it something that is more innate because it's somewhat more in line with your own gaze or are you being proactive in terms of thinking about what the female gaze should be comparatively to the male gaze just because the male gaze has dominated visual language for so long
1: it's a combination of both i mean of course considering that i am a woman i don't know what the male gaze Feels like or is like I say from sort of what I'm guessing from seeing, but it, it doesn't come from from right. inside. Uh, I see things, you know, as, as, as a female. Yeah. Um, but I do think that uh, myself, Karma Cabana, has a very particular gaze on things, and often, you know, my friends accuse me of being more masculine than feminine and stuff like that. So I am proactive as far as like you know,
0: in your visual language,
1: all the time and seeing what they're their perspective is on things because what to some might feel very dramatic Mm -hmm. to me is like, Oh, that's nothing. And then something might feel very, you know, moving to me and somebody else is like, Oh, that's not moving at all.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So, so I think it's a combination. It's understanding that, you know, the female gaze sounds like a very broad spectrum, but you know, women were all just so different. So for instance, in the case of Vida, uh, beyond bringing the, the Carmen Cabana gaze, I think it was bringing the Tania Saracho, which is our showrunner, mm. her gaze. And also, you know, based on how she would describe each character to be. Mm-hmm. Because Lena and Emma are our sisters, but they're very, very different from each other. So it was very important to give each of those characters their own gaze. Same for Eddie um, and same for La Chinche. So that's like, that was like the fun part of the of this project of this season because it was very character driven. was yeah. very very important to honor the psychology of the character in the portrayal of the cinematography that will belong to each storyline.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious with your friends saying that that they feel like you might have a more what, what were you how are you describing it, it as like masculine? But but is that in. Are they saying that? Are they making that comment about your work or about something broader and less defined? And, like, do you, do you agree with that? Do you know what that means? And is it, is it something that, that you, I don't know, associate with? Or, or I find that fascinating, especially in relation to the work towards a more mm-hmm. female oriented project.
1: Well, to be honest, I'm, I'm trying to figure out myself what they mean. Like they say it in my in my personal level on the way that I react to mm-hmm. things or say things. Mm-hmm. My my girlfriends and friend and male friends always say like, "Do you think like a dude?" But mm. they're like, "I'm you're a dude." I'm like, "Well, what what the hell is that supposed to mean?" Yeah, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, to me that's it's just a little bizarre. Mm. Uh, but it is possible. I mean, I look back at my upbringing and, like, I grew up watching, you know, anime that was, you know, violent. Like, Saint Seiya or, you know, Dragon Ball. Mm. These things that I'm sure there are other women that watch it. But, yeah, I guess you would say that they were targeted more for male. Mm. I'll be watching more Die Hard than I'm, I will be watching Disney movies. Like, I always hated the concept of, like, princesses. And I always felt the idea of princesses was just so stupid. <laughs> so... So in my persona, in uh, my personal level, yeah, I guess I do have more of an attraction towards things that are targeted towards the male audience,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's what I consume as an audience. Yeah, and therefore that's what I'm. I think I'm. I'm better at as far as creating into my work. Uh, that's why i love you know action like when my agents are constantly sending me romantic comedies yeah and i'm like dude but stop sending me romantic comedies if nobody's dying and there's no violence so there's nothing like sort of like extreme or bizarre i'm really not interested in telling these you know cute family stories i'm not (laughs) why why do you think that is well that's unfortunately that's where society comes in so people are like oh a female cinematographer Mm. okay so she's romantic comedies, mm. this nice, sor- soft, warm, delicate aesthetic, and this kind of, you know.
0: Throws you in a box.
1: And and, and that's, that's something that I've always been fighting in my career. Like I, you know, the fact that I'm a woman doesn't mean that I resonate with that aesthetic. And the same goes for men. You know, the fact that a guy is a guy doesn't mean that he cannot do a good job shooting those sort of female stories.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I was... Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say that, I, you know, I didn't know when it was going to come up in our conversation, but it seems like it's coming up now because, I mean, you're, you're very outspoken about, um, you know, w- women in television and diversity, um, particularly about women. And I was just, I'm fascinated by that and where the desire to be outspoken comes from and why, why you um, enjoy doing that.
1: Sorry, what was
2: the question
0: there? Just about your involvement in, in women's women's rights issues, women's diversity in television and, and in, in film in general. Um, you know, yes. that you're very outspoken about it and I was curious to talk about that and why um, why you why you are and why you feel it's important to be.
1: I think it's very important because I think, you know, in, in the universe and in life, things are always better when they're in balance. Mm. When they're out of balance is when we always have, you know, war, chaos, injustice. And I think that the film industry, unfortunately, has been very out of balance forever. It's only recently that there's been, you know, more sort of like an awakening of like, oh, we have to give more opportunities to women or we have to recognize. More than even giving more opportunities is is about people, you know, learning that they can trust a woman. That the fact that we are a woman doesn't mean that we're not capable of doing the same you know, quality of job of men, which is what I actually have heard in a lot of interviews that I've been into. What do you mean? Like, I listen- yeah, like, for instance, I will go to a job interview and then later, you know, you always have, like, inside people that are your connections inside that they'll tell you what people say behind. Sure, sure, yeah. And, uh, and like, recently, for instance, there was this mayor, it was, like, a $30 million movie, and this very famous actress wanted me to, you know, what, to be her cinematographer. Um my inside connection told me that her producer, who is very macho, very you know, the typical cliche of the white American, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, said like, no, I really think you need a male for your film with many more years of experience. You know, she's 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 young, she's a female. I think you need to go with this guy. And that happens very, very often, where yeah. um I mean, if, if I have to analyze the problem, I think the problem comes from like When you hire someone, you're always fearing that they're not going to do what you need them to do in the time that, you know, they're going to do. Men, because have had the advantage for all these years, have had multiple opportunities to sort of, you know, prove themselves and bring that credibility. Yeah. So a lot of men associate, you know, that sort of like safety with going with the same guys from the same club. Mm -hmm. But that puts us women in a disadvantage. So there are many women like me, for instance, that we come from, I mean, I've done 20 something films and on, on television, I think it's over now 30 episodes of TV. So if you count how many days I've been on set, it's quite a lot, sometimes it's even more than a lot of, you know, the, the male counterparts that go on interviews with me. Yeah. Um, so regardless of the genre, the experience is, the experience is there. So it's a thing of like educating people that they have to see beyond, while you are, if you have books or if you don't have books, <laughs> and see directly your, you know, your talent and your uh, capability of, of handling a production team and bringing in an aesthetic. Yeah. So it's just going to take a lot of education, and I don't want the industry to so- suddenly go a 180 degrees where it's a war of women against men, and suddenly men are all losing opportunities because of women. I think that's going to the other extreme. I mm-hmm. think the goal should be to again find a balance. And, you know, yes, continue like educating people that they can trust women. There are many women that are capable and they're fantastic and that we should be considered for a lot of the opportunities. But I also think it needs to be fair game where um, where it shouldn't be about genre. Like ultimately what I like it to be is for everybody to have equal opportunities and whoever did the best job at the interview, be able to get, you know, the opportunity. Yeah, but of course, to get to the middle point, we need more of this sort of push of production companies trying to hire more females, and also the problem with, that I'm seeing, for instance, as a cinematographer, is in trying to hire for more females in my crew.
2: Mm-hmm. They're very
1: hard to find. Yeah, it really, it really is like you know a scavenger hand trying to find the ones that are available and the ones that are great.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of the the amazing ones that I worked with earlier in my career. They quit the industry, and I talk to them often. And they say, like, why don't you come back? Like now it's a better time. And they say, like, no, I just got so burned out by the constant humiliation and the mistreatment and mm. the boys' clubs that I just don't want the industry anymore. So you know, they they burn these people, but these were women are were very very hardworking. So that part is very heartbreaking. Um, yeah, totally. You know, I, I I'm very much against bullying in any degree. I think we should all try to create a good work environment and support and elevate other people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's tough. It's like, you know, you know where you want um, things to head, but in terms of how to actually make that happen, that path is certainly less defined. Like I, I had written down, you know, asking you what we think, what you think the, I don't know, how, how, how we get there. And it, it seems it's tough. I mean, even you trying to be proactive about hiring qualified, um, great women—is it, it, that it's it's hard to find them. So it, it's a it's a it's a tough. The, the answers aren't concrete, but but uh, the rea- the obviousness of the problem existing is there.
2: Yeah,
1: and I think the answers are going to get more concrete as time goes by. I think as uh, again as more women get into the industry, prove themselves. Then we're gonna have a larger database mm. uh, than than what we currently have. So that's that's gonna be one of the things. And yeah. again, I feel like hopefully you know the normality of hiring women will be established. So it won't be like this, like oh, we are doing we're doing this thing. We're hiring women. Like that is some you know uh, thing you should applaud. I'm grateful, but it shouldn't be a special thing. It should be the normal thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I talk a lot of, uh, I mean, as far as my involvement, besides, of course, trying to have women in my in my teams, I do a lot of speaking uh, publicly, trying to encourage, you know, more women to sort of <laughs> get into the industry and also deal with funky things like, you know, sexual harassment and stuff like that, which is the other part that you do experience, yeah, uh, as a woman, uh, you know, those other elements and. Instead of putting in the right mindset, because you're going to have to cope with that one uh, one moment or another. Like, oh, for sure. It's going to come up. Yeah, yeah,
0: undoubtedly. Yeah. No, I mean that's where my my note for it came from. I mean on your um, even just on your website and your bio, just the amount of um, uh, talks that you have given uh, that are related to this topic. It's 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 pretty notable, um, and it's just clear that it's quite important to you.
1: It's very important, see. Yeah. And it's not something that is just in the film industry, honestly, it's in all the industries. But I think that fortunately, the film industry seems to be the the one that is taking steps towards correcting the problem.
0: Mm. But, well, that's uh, good.
1: But all the industries are still very behind on it. Like here in Colombia, yeah, they're way behind as far as like you know, women. Oh well, yeah. Women.
0: No, Latin America is yeah the that's tougher. The mm-hmm. the the cultural aspects are deeply rooted. I, I can't imagine the, uh, the difficulty that that presents there even more so. Correct, them Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. One, one last question that I wanted to ask about, about Vita was um, having been the sole cinematographer and having built it from season one, what was the process like when, for season two, bringing in new cinematographers? Um, were you, was there a level were you like a bit upset that you couldn't shoot all of it? And then what was that process like in terms of making sure that those cinematographers adhered to what you were trying to do?
1: To be honest, I was actually very glad that I, I couldn't shoot all of it. Um, because being the sole cinematographer on a, on a TV series has a lot of disadvantages. Mm. For one, you don't get to prep because you're, sh- you're shooting Monday through Friday. So on season one, for instance, uh, I was shooting Monday through Friday and then directors will come in sort of like middle of the week, like on a Wednesday. So it's like you don't get any time to, you know, to discuss ideas or a scout with them. So we tried to accommodate the scouts on Sundays. And suddenly I didn't have any, you know, social life for myself. We would wrap sometimes Saturday morning, which often happens, like Fridays we tend to go late. So, my saddle will be sort of recovering, and on Sunday, I will be out on the scouts the entire day. Yeah. Um, So, that gets very hard on on the body and on the personal level. And I'm also a a DP that I like to operate.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So, in season one, you know, the union has restrictions about that. You need to have hired two operators. But we will work out a deal with the operators where we're paying them. But I was able to operate a cam 98% of the time.
0: Yeah, that's a lot.
1: And that's also putting the, the physical thing on, on, you know, burden on top of the <laughs> the. Hours. It sure is, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's super hard. <laughs> yeah. <Not> a <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, see, something was really nice because, yeah, then suddenly I would shoot my my two episodes, my blog, mm. and then I would get two weeks or sometimes I would, I can't remember if we had a week hiatus or two weeks. Uh, basically, it's two weeks. Then now I'm going to the office. I'm comfortably going to my scouts. I can see with my directors, mm. look at movies together, look mm-hmm. at pictures, have discussions. It's wonderful. That part is really nice, and I think that in the end you are serving better the TV show because you are not stretching yourself so thin. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, that um, that makes total sense.
1: Now the other the the counterpart of it is hoping that the other cinematographer will honor, I mean, kind of like how in Narcos, I like, honor the aesthetic of the first DP
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the ones that I was working with and we're all sort of working cohesively. Yeah. Uh, it's sometimes, uh, you know, there are bumps where the other DP doesn't want to follow the aesthetic that you created and it, they will change the lighting in some sets that you're sharing in common. Mm. So I, I like to give other cinematographers freedom. You know, the, the idea is that you... You support the other one. It's not a competition. You're doing together. You're doing something that needs to be great, you know, um, overall. So I always felt like, you know, if it's new spaces, do whatever you want. But of course, follow the the camera language of the show. Mm -hmm. But for spaces that we have in common, like the apartment or the club or the stairs of the parking lot, if I set up that the light is sodium, don't turn it cyan. Because then for the audience, it's going to bump from episode to episode.
0: Yeah, no, if you're messing with continuity like that, I mean, that's like a... You can't. You just can't.
1: Yeah, yeah you can't. So I did have a few, you know, discussions with the other DP about it. Because, yeah, that, that was like the only bump that we had, honestly. Gotcha. Uh, but for the rest, uh, the other person that came to me, I was very capable. It was a great, great DP. And actually, I recommended her. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So that, yeah, that part, I don't have that jealousy. But I've heard stories... <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, now that I'm we're sure. Talking
1: about women, this is where women get silly. We're mm. supposed to help each other, and I've heard so many stories of like women backstabbing, bad mouthing, trying to sabotage, you know, the other DP on the show. And and again, specifically, on TV, specifically the because they're a great, woman, you don't get renewed. That's that's the bottom line. You well, have yeah, to make it great together.
0: Are you making? Are you saying that that was a characteristic that you're connecting back to them being a, a woman that they were like trying? i don't know they, they looked at it as like it's either you or me kind of thing what is that what comment are you i'm making?
1: not speaking of a personal case but i'm okay. talking with other you know female dps mm. they've told me a lot of a lot of stories like that mm. where they felt that the other dp would like sabotage them and the other dp happened to be a female mm. so so that that's what i think it's it's a mistake because we are the minority. Yeah. So we shouldn't think that by stepping others over other people, we're gonna like climb faster into the spotlight. Yeah. Uh, I really think that the the key to you know the success is that we need to join forces and support each other and not do these stupid jealousy wars. Um, but Ooh. you know, yeah, I've heard some narrowly, narrowly, narrowly stories on that.
0: Oh, that's unfortunate.
1: Um. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, that's the, that's the part about the film industry. You know, 50% of the challenge is technical. Mm. The other 50%, it's people. It's egos. It's jealousies. Everybody thinks they're right. Mm-hmm. So being able to maneuver through all that, I really think film schools should teach that. It's it's what's going to make you a working DP or a DP that shoots one thing and never works ever again.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, the, 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 the politics and the... um. Handling of all of that, uh, it really, you know, I think that's in, in a lot of ways. Sometimes that's the split that I see with people choosing either being a DP or being a cam op. Um, cam op, you you kind of just get shielded from a lot of the politics, and you kind of get to enjoy somewhat of the same things, depending. And uh, it's just, it's fascinating how once once you get into being a department head, um, the dynamics just shift mightily.
2: Mhm. Yeah, it yeah. does.
0: Yeah. Um, And the last thing that I was curious to talk about, I mean, you touched on it at the beginning um, with High Fidelity, uh, was that like Vita, you were on it from the beginning. But this is fascinating in that you're pulling from um, source material uh, that I would imagine in a certain way you're trying to um, speak to and have be noticeable. But then this source material is from the 80s when, you know, the looks were just so drastically different. And I'm curious how you balance that out. Uh,
1: So to be honest, I didn't balance that out. We broke, aesthetically, we broke away from the movie. Okay. Uh, For the reason that you said, you know, it, it, to me, felt a little dated. Mm. Uh, Back in the day, and the the Pila that movie is one of my favorite DPs in the world. It's Shamus McGarvey, who I think is a genius. Mm. I absolutely love his work. Yeah. But yeah, that that aesthetic back then worked fantastically for the film. Um, But I felt that now we needed to give it a more of like a current uh, flavor. Sure, sure. And also also going back to how things change. You know, I always talk about how things change in the landscape in the city. Like in Arcos, I was talking about the lighting in the neighborhood. Now I'm talking about the lighting in Boyle Heights. Uh, Brooklyn, it's its own animal, Brooklyn 2019. I mean, I didn't go to Brooklyn in the '80s, mm-hmm. but uh, but I definitely walk a lot of the streets of Brooklyn nowadays, and I saw the presence of you know how streets are changing to these LEDs, how the neon signs, all this other stuff. So I always think that you need to sort of adapt to what era you're filming, um, and and the one thing that we did kept, you know, from the original one is the fact that, you know, she's addressing the camera, that that Mm -hmm. intimate connection we have, Mm -hmm. the flashbacks we have, and that was the other challenge is when you have a a timeline that is not so far apart, how do you differentiate visually the flashbacks from the present time so your audience doesn't get confused? Yeah. Um, I love my pilot director, Jesse Perez. I think he's one of my favorite directors that I've ever worked with. Why? And he... Jesse Perez.
0: No, I said why. Yes. What, what was it about him?
1: I really think that his taste for um, cinema, it's, I don't want to say it's more refined, but instead of like trying to copy, you know, a lot of references, which is what most directors do, they bring you a lot of these things. And say, well, I want like this. He will really analyze more of like the journey of the character, which I appreciate that. And we will look at like still photography. He takes beautiful photographs. Mm-hmm. So we kept in mind a lot of a lot of that, um, and then the few references that he brought were actually, you know, other films that I haven't seen, uh, like uh, Paris, Texas, for instance, or this movie called Sweetie. So it exposed me to another type of cinema that I was not familiar with, um, and just as a human being, like he does have that perfect balance mm. of like being very very kind to everybody yeah but also having his strong view and guiding the the team yeah um i yeah i i really i really love and i feel very fortunate that i got to you know create the pilot with him and um unfortunately for us, they never loved the you know the pitch that we did um, as far as the series yeah um but yeah uh that, that stevie series i'm very excited we had a really good batch of directors we have jeff reiner the, the affair and um, and Dirty John, which is another show that I really like. We have Natasha Leone directing. Oh wow! From uh, yeah, from Russian Doll, and she's quite a character. Oh she's man, she's radical. she's yeah. She seems like a she's <laughs> yeah, New York encapsulated have, in a person. Yeah, we have Chucky Nasser, who also takes a lot of still photographs. So yeah, it was really, it was really, really cool. And it was an education music because for me, music it's salsa, reggaeton, merengue. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and now with uh, this record store, I, I learned a lot about like, you know, other, other styles.
2: So that's
0: really nice. Well, something I'm, I'm also, it's also interesting that in the switch from the source material to now that the main character is, goes from a male to female. Um, what sort of things, I mean, in a similar vein to, the conversation on Vita and female gaze, like, cause it's just interesting in terms of what you're alluding to, that there's a flip in that gaze. Was there, how did you guys approach that? Or was it more natural? The fact that the lead character is who she is and you just kind of went with what made sense. And it's okay if it wasn't as proactively thought about.
1: No, it, it is different. I'm just trying to think of the ways toward it because, you know, the character is going through the same sort of heartbreak of, of you know, being left by, you know, the partner.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but women, we... Oh, this what I'm, talking about. I'm going to speak as a female because on that I'm definitely very, very female. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the feeling to be abandoned all of a sudden has It's uh, tricky tricky to explain. It feels different to women than to men. For instance, right now I was just talking to to a friend of my dad that she just left the guy, Mm -hmm. and she was telling me how, like, you know, she just left him, but she wishes to still be with him. So, but she left him to teach him a lesson. But she's constantly looking at the cell phone, and and she saw how for the first three days he was texting her like, hey, 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 let's get back together and pictures and this and that. And now day five. He already stopped, you know, writing to her, and he deleted their Facebook pictures. And he's going more into the pride mode. I've noticed from being a female and dating men that when it comes to breakups, men do go through that journey. They they'll they'll first, you know, seek you out, and then they'll sort of sort of take into their pride. And they'll take their distance. Even if they miss you, they won't let you know it because their punishment is that kind of like quiet treatment of like, okay, suddenly you're nothing. Mm. At least that's what I've experienced and that matches a lot of what my girlfriends tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's so there's a I mean, visually in the story, there's that sense of like having to portray that sort of abandonment and that longing for this person to to come back. Mm. So you have, for instance, like framing the empty spaces in the frame next to the character or doing the mirror frames where sometimes you have the person sitting on the couch and it's with the guy, you know, making out or having a good time. And then you go back to the exact same framing, but the person is gone. So you allude to, to that sense of like, you know, emptiness, of the breakup of the routine. I think for women, the one thing that is most shocking for us when we break up is is that sort of yeah, the break of the of, of the routine because we become accustomed to things, we love mm. these rituals, mm. and suddenly we don't have anybody to perform them on. Um so so there's a lot of that but it gets very specific. I will have to tell you a lot of like the plot things that happened and I don't think the show will let me yet because it hasn't been released. Oh yeah no no so we, we don't have to talk <laughs> but, about it. But that it detailed. was a lot of like that sort of case by case of like what would, does this feel to her what it was a woman and soycravis is an executive producer on it so she had a lot of say you know yeah um and that, that was the interesting collaborations how do we, do we represent these things and for me it's a story that I could relate a lot because I''m, I'm I divorced two years ago or three years ago I don't remember that enough <laughs> exactly, but but it's something that the breakup was still still, still sort of fresh mm. um I think in the in the movie it it i didn't i didn't get his sense i think he was more verbal and more direct about this longing for her and yeah. his journey yeah. rather than internal i think that's the difference between men and women
2: mm-hmm. like
1: yeah i think men are more straightforward and easier to read than we go on a more internal kind of journey kind of thing
0: yeah we i mean <laughs> i think that's true um <laughs> and it's it's fascinating too when you can i don't know it's like a lot of times, I find that it's more on the intangible side, and there's nothing that you can like fully pinpoint to. But it's fascinating that you were going through a breakup of your own, and then doing a project that touches on that subject. That it's probably hard to quantify exactly how that personal experience affected your artwork on the show. But I would imagine that it that it did. Do you uh, do you have any thoughts on 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 that when that happens? Yep
1: it does affect a little bit it, it, yeah it does affect a little bit because yeah it definitely sends you back on memory lane
2: yeah
1: but also but also to be honest when you're on set mm-hmm. you really i mean at least myself i am like a focus machine because mm. there's so much so much going on so mm-hmm. there may be moments where you know performance will be so emotional so great that yeah i may i will tear up or like i will feel it in my heart especially when i'm operating oh not it's even emo- Not even a- it's the first time that i didn't operate Mm-hmm. actually, oh, I, oh, wow. This time, I yeah, the, this time I was like, okay, now I'm gonna try what almost the cinematographers do, and it's behind being behind monitors. And that was an interesting experience as well. Uh, not bad actually, I, I, I it's it's different, but it's it definitely allows you to fine tune better yes. everything because now you're seeing what the other camera is also doing, yeah, rather than you know having distrust.
0: Um, Yeah, and I guess I wasn't even really speaking on an emotional plane in terms of, you know, oh, witnessing a scene that reminds you of your own life is very affecting for you personally, but more that, I don't know, there might just be insights into what the characters are going through that, impacts your decision making on a technical level about how you frame them how you light them um just because i don't know you're you're relating to the character deep more more deeply than you would if if the character was going through something that you hadn't personally experienced and it that kind of thing
1: yeah and that's 100 percent for sure
0: yeah that's cool and then yeah i guess the last thing it's just fascinating that you're going to have uh that this went straight with more of a cam op and that you were able to free yourself from it was that um, Nerve wracking, but I, I I've experienced it as well. Where you're like, oh, I can actually um, be looking at the monitor as a take is happening and be way more judicious about reviewing everything versus having to actually do the operating. That I it is there's like a you know there are pros and cons, I guess.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there are pros and cons. I think that on the being able to witness everything and and at least that allows the lighting to be more. Um, finesse mm-hmm. but, but the con is that when you're operating you can react in the moment
2: mm-hmm.
1: to the things that the actors change in the moment as well because sometimes you discuss with an operator okay well according to the blocking this is what's happening so i need you to do this 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 and that and that's what feels logical but then as the scene is actually happening things shift and if you then don't correct but you go with the plan Now you are not telling the story visually from a subjective perspective. You are becoming objective because your camera is in the wrong place at the the wrong time. Um, So that part will get frustrating because I also understand as an operator, if your boss tells you to do something and suddenly things change on you, you feel like, oh, do I go with my instinct and do I, you know, now change the whole plan on the spot or do I go with the instruction to not, upset the boss yeah so i've had a lot of conversations like that with the operators and it was that process of sort of building the trust with each other of like mm. it's good to go with your instincts but sometimes their instinct will be wrong i'll be in the monitor like pulling my hair and being like what <laughs> the hell why <laughs> why did you make that decision like what
0: <laughs> yeah no it's, yeah those are the moments where it like it feels like an opportunity lost for the movie and yeah they're hard they're hard to deal with
1: yeah, exactly, because you miss that moment. And and some of the pieces, you know, use that kind of thing, which is like a headpiece with a microphone, so you could be talking to the operators.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I kind of hate that. Um, mm. From both perspectives, from me giving the instruction and also having been an operator my whole life on every project, when you are so focused on the lines of the actors and suddenly you have a technical person talking to you, it pulls you out of the scene.
2: Mm, totally.
1: That's like for sports, in my opinion. It's only you're a puppet and you're not a person feeling and capturing with a camera subjectively. And yeah. I'm a very, very big fan of subjective camera. Um, so I don't like that. I think for me, if I continue, let's say if I do it again of being behind monitors, mm-hmm. what I have to do is I have to work with the operators that I've been using when I used to operate. Because I think we're more acquainted with each other. Um so there will be less of those bumps of like, oh, you... you the you operators dance,
0: that were me. on B-cam, you mean? Like the ones yeah. that, that were doing the dance with you?
1: Exactly. Because those, you know, we've done so many things together that we, we're like a unity. The same thing as my focus puller, Michael Chimianic. Mm-hmm. I actually bumped him to operator recently on the Blumhouse movie. hmm And I was very happy with his work and I, you know, it was his first camera operating gig and I was like, Michael, you're ready. You've been my focus puller forever. And I've seen your instincts or the things that you tell to my ear because, you know, that's the good thing about focus pullers. They're not just doing focus. they sometimes if you have that relationship, they, they bring great suggestions to the table. Mm. And I was like, you, you're ready. I'm going to have to find someone to replace you the Focus Footlink because you're fantastic, but I believe in you as an operator and I want to help you now grow that journey. And he did terrific. I mean, that guy really is great. Yeah. So for me, it would be about working with the people that are compatible um, and that I would a so create, you know, an opportunity to again open the position of focus puller to someone else mm-hmm. and build a new relationship, and again giving a chance to somebody new. I think that's that's very important: is that uh, that you bump people up so they're not stuck in the same position forever and ever.
0: Yeah. No, and that and that goes back to just some of the things that fall into the DP bucket of responsibility, and just in terms of good leadership, um, that you know, I, uh, everyone else that. Is in your department isn't dealing with in the same way, uh, and having having that type of um, eye that is not just for the work itself, but also for like team management, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's correct. I think everybody should be conscious of the you know the workflow of us as a team. And everybody should know the story. I think even if you are the person that works at Crafty, it helps if you actually read the script because um, it feels different. Movies work better or TV shows work better where everybody is conscious of what we're creating together. It it gives a sense of camaraderie and a sense of belonging to something. So suddenly you care. And when you care, you do better work and you actually have a better time because then you're engaged you're not watching from the outside waiting for the hours to pass by so you can go home you're part of something and, and i think our industry is very very fun if you're not enjoying the, the being there in the moment belonging to something and being proud of the work you do whatever the position you are it, it's the key and it's what's going to make you stand out to the other people on set sometimes i notice pas that are like so fantastic because they're so engaged and connected with everything mm. they'll take their phone numbers and then i'll recommend them into another production Mm. Then suddenly, you know, they start to bump up. Now there are no PAs. Now they are, you know, second, second idea. Now they're like other things. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's key. A good PA is not a PA for long. That's for sure. Yeah, but uh, no, I know that you have to go. And anyway, it's it's been it's been an hour, and. Really, really enjoyed being able to talk with you about, about all of this. Uh, your The presentation that you gave at Masters of Motion a couple of years ago was awesome. And, and uh, ever since, I've been hoping to be able to chat uh, with you about about your career. So, you know, thank you for the time. And thank you for all of the, all your thoughts and everything you shared.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you know the time. And I can't wait
0: to see you in a month. Yeah, it's going to be great.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I'll okay. see you soon. And okay. thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye.